Thanks for downloading this podcast from RNIB Connect Radio. Well-known Scottish artist Keith Salmon creates moody and ethereal landscapes. Keith lost his sight in the 90s due to diabetic retinopathy, but he's never stopped painting. Now, alongside his friend and colleague, sound engineer Graham Byron, he's created an installation that combines image and sound design to create a very powerful and inclusive experience. Graham and Keith join me in the studio now. Thank you for joining me in the studio, both of you. And it's such a pleasure to have you here today. Now, Keith, we're going to start off with you because you uh, are a, a very well-known Scottish artist. You're well-known for painting landscapes. And uh, we are going to come on to a fantastic project that, that you and Graham are involved in in just a few moments. But let's start off with your visual impairment. Your sight started to go uh, around about 1990, didn't it, due to diabetic retinopathy? That's, uh, that's right, yeah. Um, uh, I was 30 at the time. Um, I've had uh, type 1 diabetes since I was seven. Yeah, this, the sight started to go quite bad quite quickly. And in, in the early 90s, I, I um, had quite a lot of laser treatment. And luckily, um, they managed to save a little bit of sight in my right eye. Um, I still have this little bit of sight in my right eye, which I sort of do everything with now. It's a terribly traumatic time when it starts to go your sight. And I know from experience, I, I lost my sight completely due to yeah. diabetic retinopathy. My sight went pretty much in the space of a fortnight. Oh, wow. It was very, very quick. And I had laser treatments and vitrectomies and, you know, all this kind of thing to, to try and sort out my yeah. sight. But unfortunately, there was nothing that could be done. You were an artist back then, weren't you? Oh, yes. Yeah, I... I, I basically been working as an artist uh, all my adult life. Um, I went to college back in the, the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and uh, so it was only a few years after that, uh, a few years into my, my sort of attempt at working as a, a, a full-time professional artist that my sight went bad, yeah. How does that actually affect you when you're doing something that's so incredibly visual I mean I was an air hostess before I lost my sight and I think you know I'd be rather frightened if somebody was a blind air hostess you know I'd I'd be frightened (laughs) where they'd be putting the coffee but this was your livelihood I mean I know that air hostessing for me was a step to moving on to something else that I wanted to do I just wanted to travel at the time but this was your livelihood I mean how did that affect you? Um, well, it, you know, to start with, um, when uh, the consultant first looked at my site, he said he thought that I would probably lose all my site within a few years. Uh, but he said he would try and save a little bit. And yeah, that was a, a real big shock. I actually stopped working um, for quite a few months. Um, it's about one of the only times in, you know, in the whole 30 something years um, that I have done no art. And it was because I, I couldn't really figure out, you know, what the point was of, of, of trying to become a, a, a professional artist if I, if I couldn't see. It was actually, it was about, say, three months after I'd stopped working that I suddenly thought, well, you know, he only said that he thought I'd probably lose all my sight. He didn't say definitely. And I thought, well, I'm actually wasting my time. You know, I ought to be using the time that I have and the site that I have to do as much work as possible. I trained as a sculptor. I was working as a sculptor. 
Um, but I rather, at that point, I suddenly thought, well, let's stop doing sculpture and, and just work on the purely visual side of my work, the drawing, the painting. And I kind of thought at the time that if the worst happened and, and I did lose all my sight, I could go back to working as a sculptor in a purely tactile way. As things turned out, he managed to, to save this little bit of sight. And I've just stuck with drawing and painting ever since. It's incredible. It really is. I mean, I know that, that when I first lost my sight, people would say to me, but why do you want to do this? Or why do you want to? Why do you want to get into radio or media? Or why do you bother putting on makeup? And I suppose it must have been a question that a lot of people asked you at the time. Why art when you're blind? You know, I, I can understand sculpture because it's a very kind of tactile thing. You're feeling the clay. You're getting the experience of the feeling of the clay between your hands and you're molding it. I, I think, you know, part of part of it comes from the fact that I'm I'm pretty pretty stubborn um and I thought well you know I'm gonna keep on doing this but there is for me there's a love of drawn mark painted mark color and though the the site that I have now is very very limited I've learned to adapt you know what I see is is not very much and I still love going out in the mountains and the hills and uh, what I see is very much a kind of patchwork of various colors and tones and stuff um, but it, it's still stunningly beautiful. You, you you adapt. And so because I can still see some colour and I can still see um, some shapes and textures and things, for me, that's still beautiful. And, and hopefully I can still make a painting which conveys some of it in quite a good way. The thing is, you and I have both been blessed with sight. I'm so incredibly grateful for my 19 years of perfect sight because I have a very, very vivid imagination. And I suppose working in radio, whether you can see or not we're trying to paint pictures for people sure. every day we're trying to create those images but I've got a very vivid imagination a very vivid memory of colour and things like that so so I completely understand what you're saying now Graham you're sitting here and I heard you <coughs> snigger when uh, Keith <coughs> said he's very stubborn <laughs> yes. <No idea. laughs> you, sound oh, like, <laughs> you sound like uh, you're sniggering from experience now, how did you two meet um, well, I was working at the Harbour Arts Centre at the time as the resident kind of um, technician, doing sound and light for all the shows. And um, Keith was doing a, an exhibition piece and uh, had decided to approach me um, because he had, he had decided to dabble with sound. He wanted to capture the sounds on site when he was out in the field. So uh, I gave him a loan of some equipment and said, uh, forget the manual, forget everything, just go out there, record stuff, make mistakes, uh, and then come back and see what we've got. So that's what we did. Uh, and eventually ended up with what was going to eventually become the Oregon Project, which was a huge audio piece of work that went with the artistic piece of work that Keith was trying to represent as well. Although in saying that, Keith was very much, hand, but not hands-on, completely involved in the entire process of making the sound files. I mean, it must have been very strange for you when, you know, this guy comes to you out of the blue and <clears> says, <throat> you know, I want to work with art and sound. Did you, did you scratch your head at all at any point and think... This guy's blind, you know, how is he going to manage this? Or, you know, how is this going to work between the two of us? I always kind of sit and think, well, OK, let's let's do this and, and see what happens. Because I'm very much, you know, let's throw the manuals away and let, let's just get in and do it. Um, one of the things I definitely got out of the whole process was I've been doing sound now for something like 30 years and it's changed even the way I perceive sound. Because Keith and I would sit with all the sound files, so there would be like, for example, a minute's worth of files. It would be birds. There would be like kind of wind. There would be a river noise. And Keith was sitting with the headphones, telling me exactly where that should be, whether that should be left in the head or 
are right in the head. It's, it made me kind of think, right, hang on a wee second, there, there's more depth to this than even I knew. And it was it was such a massive learning experience for me to actually be involved and actually close my own eyes to actually sit and listen to what we were actually doing. So I was fortunate enough I could open my eyes and see the painting, but also close my eyes so I could see the painting as well. It's a fascinating subject, you know, talking about blind and partially sighted people and, and completely sighted people working together on, on very visual projects and, and how they interact with each other and the things that they learn from each other because of the experience. I um, was asked to produce a documentary for Scottish television a number of years ago mm. and working with the director, I mean, people laughed. They thought, how could you work in television when you can't see? But the things that I remembered during the filming, through sound, through conversations that people had had that the director had forgot. You know, we worked so well together. Mm -hmm. And actually, he saw a completely different side of, of how a blind person would be able to work in such a kind of visual atmosphere. But you talked about the, the Oregon project. Now, this sounds stunning. It really, really does. It sounds so fascinating. Who, who's responsible for this? Was it something um, you both came up with together? It was actually... Um sort of a completely different approach to using sound with art. When I approached Graham, I was looking to use sound as an artist, as a way of, of continuing to work as a painter, as an artist, um, even if my sight deteriorated further. It was actually um, sort of a completely different approach to using sound with art. When I approached Graham, I was looking to use sound as an artist, as a way of, of continuing to work as a painter, as an artist, um, even if my sight deteriorated further. Um, but at the same time, over in Seattle, uh, a chap called Neil Joshi, who is a researcher for Microsoft, he was coming up with the idea of, of using their pre-existing Kinect technology um, they're scanning cameras which were designed for the gaming industry. Um, but he, he had the idea that we could uh, use the cameras to develop a, a kind of audio interpretive system to help blind and visually impaired people interpret two-dimensional images such as paintings, drawings, photos, etc. And he developed a prototype called mm -hmm. Eyes Free Art. And he had got to a stage where um, he wanted to start working with an artist. So I guess in a way I, I ticked all the boxes. And after quite a lot of discussions and, and meetings on Skype, they invited me to then join the project. And with Graham working with me on the sound, and it, it just developed from there. So tell us about the actual Oregon project. We wanted to try and create... Um, a new piece of art rather than just um, interpreting a pre-existing painting um, and I've been doing some very large drawings so we thought it'd be nice to, to make a big installation piece. Um, I went out with my partner Nita and with Dan and his assistant Cindy Apple we, we spent eight days in, in the Oregon landscape and it's a stunning, stunning place. It's within sort of 45 miles, you've got 10,000 foot alpine peaks, um, vast great area of treeless prairie. And then that just drops into this huge region known as the Hell's Canyon region um, of Oregon, big sort of area of interconnecting canyons. And we, we rushed around on those eight days and, and looked at each of the different types of landscape. And I had to decide very quickly which of those regions I'd like to base three big drawings on and I chose the Canyonland because they were so different from anything we had in Scotland 
and the idea was I would create these three big drawings, each one eight foot by four, um, one based on the, 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 the top of the canyon um, at a point where you're about 5,000 feet and you look right out over this canyon region. Uh, a second drawing based about halfway down inside the canyon. So very sort of classic canyon country, very dry, very brown, uh, rattlesnake country. It's, it's fantastic, like something out of the movies. Uh, and then a final drawing based right in the, the bottom of the canyon, almost 3,000 feet below the, the canyon rim. I drew, I can't sketch as perhaps people consider sketching. I use a monocular and, and so for me to sketch outdoors, I have to balance a sketchbook on my lap sit down obviously uh, and then hold the monocular with my left hand up to my right eye and then basically just scribble blind and that's what I do. The drawings I create, they're scribbles basically, but what this process does is it forces me to really look uh, and take in in my head what the landscape is like. And so I was doing that and the whole time I had a sound recorder recording as did Dan, as did my partner Nita. And during that, that eight days, we recorded hours and hours of, of, of various sounds from tree frogs to crickets to wind to birds, people walking on dusty, rocky ground. When the trip was over, um, I then had to come back to Scotland and I had to, to go through all these hours of soundtracks. And try and work out what sounds might go in to the soundtracks that we wanted to add to these these drawings. Well, this is where I find it absolutely fascinating because it's it's almost like you're kind of layering the sounds, isn't it? And there's there's different kind of tones for different parts of the installation that you're walking about. I mean, Graham, can you tell us a bit more about that, where the sound actually <clears throat> comes into this? Yeah, well, um, the, the very first, it's in three levels. So the, the, the closer you are up to the, the very front level of the drawing is the actual marks that Keith makes. So essentially it's putting microphones on the actual surface of the painting and then just letting Keith draw. And after he draws, we get all the different... So there's, there's some are broad swooshes and some are tight curls. Um, so you get a very descriptive kind of feel to the way that the scribbles are actually built up into becoming an actual painting. Um, after that, there's a second level, which is the mechanical noise of Keith drawing, but also a tonal um, note attached to each one. So, so this kind of synthesised yeah, then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So essentially what, what happens is Keith decided what colours, what notes he thought represented each colour best. So there was like four colours. So then mm-hmm. Keith would say, right, that's definitely a yellow to me. And that's so what we would do is we would construct the tone around all his marks so is that as you progress through the drawing, you can actually see the colour changing by the, the tonal value of the sound as well. And then the third level is just basically the wind and the landscape and the crickets. And It sounds incredible, it really does. And actually I'm really, really interested in the fact that you've mentioned about the fact that, that you kind of denoted certain colours with... Uh, certain sounds because that is a form of synesthesia. I, it was interesting. I was talking to a, a lady uh, only the other week at, at a, um, an event I went to, and she was saying her daughter actually sort of hears colour 
That's uh, right. It's, yeah. it's, it's a kind of uh, blending of the senses. So yeah. sometimes people will hear a word and they'll taste something or yes. they'll see a colour and they'll they'll taste it or they'll hear a note. So it was just interesting. You know, there's, there's quite a few people that I've spoken to that actually, since losing their sight, have developed synesthesia. That's interesting. I, I don't feel that it was it was kind of a, a natural thing. We I, I did find it quite difficult trying to um, match up uh, the 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 right tones with the main kind of color blocks, and we we have areas of sort of yellow and pale green. This kind of sky blue areas, three dark uh, sort of raw umber, dark green areas, and there's kind of grey purples. Um, and I, I'll be honest, it 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 didn't come naturally to me, and I, th- I think they work well. And and the 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 one for the yellow it sounds like um, 10cc from, yes. from the okay. 1970s. <laughs> Um, uh, so whenever I hear 10cc, I know it's yellow. Um, uh, but I'm not sure how how natural it was. It, it was it was. I found that quite a difficult process. Essentially, the scribbles are played like a musical instrument, so it's not just a distinct tone. It actually matches what he's actually putting on the paper. As it spins, the tone spins as well. So as he strokes, the tone strokes as well. So. Um, it's actually like he's playing the colour. Uh, rather than just drawing the colour as well. I know there's 15 speakers placed around the installation, isn't there? So basically the the, the whole work is, the, 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 the clever bit is the use of the, the, the Microsoft Connects. Now these are um, scanning cameras, I think yep. they are, aren't yep, they, sure, yep. Yeah. Um, and there's four of those, so within the space um, in front of the drawings, there are uh, these, uh, four Connects, one in each corner. And as a person moves into the space, uh, the gallery space, it instantly recognises a person as a, a human form and it then tracks you wherever you go while you're in that space. It knows exactly where you are in relation to the, the, the connects and in relation to the paintings. Um, it knows whether you move right up close to the drawing into the level one sounds that Graham was describing of me actually drawing the drawing or whether you move back uh, and listen to the sounds of, of the birds or the river or that, or whether you move a bit clearer and then hear the tonal things. But it also knows uh, it can track your arm movement. And so if you point to the top of the drawing, it will know that you're doing that and it will play you sounds relating to that area of the drawing. So as you move around, it, it constantly knows where you are. And as you move from one drawing or one half of the drawing to another half, one speaker turns off and another speaker will suddenly click on and you'll hear uh, a minute-long soundtrack. But if you only stay there for 10 seconds, you'll hear 10 seconds and then move on. It just fascinates um, me. It really does, because I get so frustrated at people thinking that as a blind person, I can't appreciate art. And this sounds so inclusive, mm-hmm. so accessible <clears throat> for blind or partially sighted people or people with their full vision. There's something for everybody there, isn't there? We went over to Seattle and at the exhibition, there was a group of uh, visually impaired people come in and... Uh, you know, it was something that everyone could access. Listen, ah. you cannot deny the general public that do have a little bit of partial sight or uh, are fully sighted your beautiful artwork because it is incredible. And I'm sure, mm-hmm. you know, together, this is going to be one phenomenal piece. I mean, I'm dying, dying, dying to find out more about it and to experience it for myself. How can people experience it? Uh, right, well, we're, we're, we're now just two less than two weeks away uh, from... 
exhibiting it uh, at the Tent Gallery. Um, we've been invited by uh, Donald Urquhart at um, the Edinburgh College of Art to show it in their Tent Gallery. Um, and uh, basically, um, that show will open to the public on the 8th um, of April, and it will run through to the 22nd. Um, the exhibition will be open daily uh, from uh, 11 in the morning till 5pm in the evening, except uh, Thursdays, uh, when we'll be open from 1 in the afternoon to 7. So that gives people who are working a chance to get along. Um, we are actually holding uh, an evening uh, for our NIB uh, users, um, uh, and that will be on Tuesday the 11th between 5 and 7. We also have uh, a selection of my other work, including a big 5 metre by 1.5 metre graphite drawing, so that's a, a big monster. But we've also, um, two of the members of the team from Seattle, they've already started to work on what probably will be the next phase of this work. They've taken one of my pre-existing paintings, a painting based on the mountain Culmore up in Assen, and they've written new code, and using one connect, they've uh, created, uh, again, an, uh, an audio interpretive system, this time, though, working through a Bluetooth uh, wireless uh, headset. And so this is far more geared to the idea of, of perhaps taking this technology and producing something which in the future, you know, might be available in national galleries so that um, people like yourself and myself can go to the National Gallery in Scotland or in England or somewhere and we can wander by these paintings and we will get this uh, audio interpretive experience of the work in front of us. And, and if you can see a little bit like me, then you get a certain experience and if you can't see anything then you get purely audio experience. It's such an exciting prospect it really is and Graham if anybody wants to find out more about the Oregon project or where the exhibition is going to be how can they do so? Um, I think there's a Facebook event. Or if uh, if if people like to go to my website um, which is uh, www.keithsalmon.org the homepage has all the information, dates, times. Um, it also has some photos for those who can see photos. Keith and Graham, it's been so fascinating talking to you today. It really has the very best of luck with the exhibition. Thank you. And thank you, thank you so much for joining us here on RNIB Connect Radio. Thank you. Thank you. For more downloads like these, visit rnibconnectradio.org.uk slash podcasts.